0: So Father, we pray that indeed this new year might be filled with your glory, that we might experience your glory as we worship you, as we gather together as a congregation and seek your face, that we might see your glory in our own quiet time, our private devotions when we draw near to you, and that you might reflect your glory in and through us in the way we live, way we act. Lord, in the things that we say, the people we touch. Oh Lord, we look to you for glory and power and peace. And we ask all of these things in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. I don't know if you're in the habit of picking a verse for the new year. Not a bad habit. I know some people who like to pick a word for the new year, and that becomes their word. I think the idea of having something that gives you a little more defined focus for the upcoming year brings hope, hopefully gives you direction. And that's what I want to do this morning, is actually share with you, I think, a great verse for the upcoming year for us as a congregation maybe for you personally and it comes out of the story of the life of David now you don't need to turn to first Samuel 21 but that's the background of the story because David was fleeing from King Saul Saul was angry with a young upstart and knew that David would be king and more powerful than he ever was. David already had great success, far greater than King Saul's. So David was on the run, looking for some place of safety. And as he was leaving Jerusalem, he stopped at the town of Nob and Obie. Apparently... Uh, which is near Mount Scopus, and that's just north of the Mount of Olives. So we're talking just west of the city of Jerusalem. David's on his way out. He's looking for provisions, and he's looking for weapons, and he's got a few people following him, his faithful. The only provisions there came from the temple, and it was bread that only the priests could eat, but it was given to David because these were extreme situations. Interesting how God in his mercy bends, as it were, some of his laws, not his moral laws, but some of the ceremonial laws for the greater good, just as he does the Sabbath, for the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. But the only weapon that was there was a sword. And the priest said, this is all we've got as far as weapons go, and by the way, it's the sword that you used when you killed Goliath. It's wrapped up here and behind the ephod. I don't know if it was something like a museum piece. I would think it would be a magical sword, wouldn't you? I mean, the sword that David used, he took it from Goliath and he cut off the giant's head and he came back and David kept hold of it for a while, but now it was in this unique place And it's almost like David didn't know it was there. And when he saw the sword, he says, there's nothing like it, I'll take it. And I still envision a guy who isn't as big as Saul, he didn't even fit into Saul's armor, is now carrying the sword of a giant. That must have been hard to use, but he had it. But here's the interesting thing. David then continued fleeing toward the west and went to the city of Gath. You and I make some really poor decisions when we're under pressure. And I think this was a poor decision. No, I think this was a stupid decision by King David. Because Gath is one of the major cities of the Philistines. The enemies of Israel. And Gath is the hometown of Goliath, and everyone there knew the sword. So David comes into town, hey, isn't that that David? What's he doing here? And what has he got? He's got the sword that he took from our champion when all our hopes and dreams were dashed and he cut off his head. What in the world, David, are you going to a place like this for safety? I tell you, we make some really poor decisions when we're under pressure. Perhaps you look back at some of the decisions you made during this last year and you say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wasn't thinking clearly. But we look to the wrong places for help. And David is looking to the Philistines in the city of Gath. He's just not thinking straight. So sure enough... He gets there, King Achish is the king of Gath, and the servants recognize who David is. And they say, isn't this a guy that they used to sing about? Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his 10,000s, and it's our people that he killed. And David heard this, and he was very much afraid. So the scripture says he pretended to be insane. Now this is, just, this is just plain funny. I mean, if you're David and your life is being threatened, that's a little different. But, but David pretends to be insane. So the scripture says that he makes marks on the city gates. It begins to drool down his beard. Uh, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. When David realized that he had been recognized, he panicked. Fearing the worst from the king. So right there, while everyone was looking at him, and by the way, when you're at the city gate, that's where all the leaders congregate. Uh, That's like the court. Uh, That's the position of the governor. While everyone's looking at him, he pretended to go crazy, pounding his head on the city gate, foaming at the mouth, spit dripping from his beard. And King Achish took one look at him and said to his servants, can't you see he's crazy? Why did you bring him to me? Don't you think I have enough crazy people to put up with as it is? Why did you bring me another? I love that. The king says, don't you think I have enough nut jobs already? Why are you bringing me another one? Talk about King David who was revered and honored, dignified, exalted in his position, now pretending to be crazy. I think he probably used a sword to make marks on the gates. They would have killed him, but they said, this guy's harmless. And the scripture says that the king said, get him out of here. So 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 says, David escapes, he goes across the valley of Elah, which just happens to be where he fought Goliath, and he finds a cave, the cave of Adullam, and he hides there in the cave, and apparently that's where he writes Psalm 34. Now, Psalm 34 is one of the few psalms that has for us an introduction, a preface. These are part of the text, They're part of the word of God. If I'm not mistaken, there's about 17 of the 150 psalms that give to us a little backstory, and here is one. And that's how we connect the two together. This is a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech. Now you say, I thought the king's name was Achish. Abimelech might be a title like Caesar, or it could be a family name. But we're talking about the same guy. He is the Abimelech of the area, and his name is King Akish. And this is when King Akish drove him away when David pretended to be mad. Now, he gets into the cave, just got away by the skin of his teeth, almost lost his life, and he writes a poem. Do you journal when? when uh, you need to relieve pressure do you write poetry some people do David did and he wrote this psalm psalm 34 after that event which gives us tremendous insight into what is happening So he says, and by the way, this psalm is an acrostic psalm, which means he takes the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew alphabet and uses them uh, in an arrangement to build up the structure of his poetry. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. By the way, that would be a great year verse for a couple, for a family. It's not the one I'm thinking of, but it's another good one. Verse 4 I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And here it is, verse 5 Those who look to him are radiant, their faces are never covered with shame, and that's the verse I suggest to you, which would be a great verse for a new year. Now David was looking for help from a sword, and when you're in battle, that's understandable. But it doesn't make any sense for him to go to the Philistines to find safety and help. But now in the cave, stripped of all these other things, he realizes that he needs to look to Jehovah for help. And that's what verse 5 says. Look to him. Look to him. Now, first of all, let's say a word about the activity of looking. It is a metaphorical phrase um, it is not necessarily a literal phrase, a phrase, certainly in the spiritual realm, when we're looking unto Jesus, it has to be with the eyes of faith. It has to be something we do with our spiritual heart and mind and soul. But the activity described here with the word looking is really praying. For we see in verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. That's looking. Or verse 6, I cried out to the Lord, and he saved me. That is looking. Looking is the, is the focus of the heart. When the eyes are turned and looking, we think in, in the physical realm, you think of two individuals who are in love, they say it with their eyes. And the eyes reveal the heart and the intentions of the soul and the emotions as well. So this idea of looking has with it so many factors, and we'll look at some of them in in just a moment. But it's the idea of making sure that he is the main focus of our dependence, the main focus of our worship, the main focus uh, of our love and devotion. Look to Jesus. It's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, we find this focus. It's found in chapter three, and then again in the more famous section in chapter 12, where we're told to look unto Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. I don't think we do that very well. So what I'm suggesting is that you and I Learn to look to Christ every day this year. And I would encourage you to do it early in the day because if you don't do it early, you will be distracted by a thousand things to look at. Everything else will grab your attention, but you need to look to him. The activity is prayer. Now, the identity of the person that we're looking at, it's important for us to see who that person is, and it is the Lord. Now, that seems obvious, but what strikes me in this psalm of, what, 22 verses, that 17 times the name Yahweh is mentioned. When you see capitals in your translation, It's referring to that special name of God that the Hebrew people did not want to uh, articulate. And so they would write it in their documents just with consonants, and no one could pronounce the vowels. And that's where we come up with the Y-H-W-H, which turns into, with a couple vowels, because we can't just pronounce consonants, Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah. The point is, this is the self-existent one. This is the God who is above all gods. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the king of the universe. Remember who you're looking to. Compared with every source of help out there, there is nothing like Jehovah. It's a look that drives us to the self-existent one, so we are to look up. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, in balance, we should have one look to self and 10 looks to Christ. Remember that? It's a great quotation. Why? Because we have the tendency to flip it. And 90% of the time, we're looking at ourselves at at others. And only a few uh, times we look to Christ. Nine looks to Christ. Because if you look to yourself, you are going to be discouraged. You need to look to yourself enough to recognize you're a sinner. You need to look to yourself enough to realize I can't do this. You need to look to yourself enough to see that there's nothing in you that would merit his mercy and grace, but then stop it and look to Christ. People are so focused on themselves. How do I look? So we come into a new year and the advertisers are taking advantage of a new look for a new year. And now you've got to change your wardrobe and your accessories and you've got to change yourself because everyone needs a new look for a new year. No, it's not how you look. It's where you look that's important. And we are to look to the one who has all power. It's an amazing privilege that we can do that. But the more we look to ourselves, the more defeated we will be. And the more we look in faith to Christ, the more victorious we will be. So that's verse 5. Now, we might ask the question, okay, how do we look? And it's interesting that this psalm gives us several perspectives. I would say, first of all, it's a look of desperation. That's what David was doing. He was crying out. In fact, I think it's three times, verse 6, verse, is it 17 and 19? Prayer is described as a cry. And you and I have been, perhaps we are, we will be desperate. You're going to be desperate sometime this year. As David was desperate to save his life, and under pressure, you might make some poor decisions unless you learn to cry out to the Lord. This poor man cried out, verse 6, and the Lord heard him. It's interesting, David describes himself as being poor in verse 6, being afflicted, in verse two, having fears that surround him, verse four and other places, and troubles in the plural, verse six, verse 17, verse 19. So we're not talking about a person who has an easy life. Now we know what some of David's troubles are. And we say to ourselves, yeah, David, but you could have avoided a lot of that yourself. But the point is, our life ends up accumulating troubles that we invited upon ourselves. We should have known better, and yet here we are. So what do we do? Cry out to God for help. He also adds the idea that this is for the crushed in spirit and the brokenhearted, verse 18. I mean, you just about cover every possible emotion here. The whole gamut of human suffering could be found in Psalm 34, certainly in the whole book of Psalms, and it's all answered, at least the first step, is to get your eyes back on Christ. So it's a cry for desperation. Secondly, it's a cry of adoration. That's the first few verses. Bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, this shows a little progress with David. I think along the line, in the cave, he confessed his own failure and stupidity. He confessed his own sin, and he quickly looked to Jehovah. And when you visualize, when you are praying, And I don't mean visualize a person, but when you somehow focus on the fact that you're talking to the king of the universe, you have to praise him. You must praise him. And that's what it means to look to him. Verse 3, magnify, glorify. Look at the Old Testament prayers of Nehemiah and Ezra. Those prayers start out with a recognition of who God is. Adoration. The third thing I notice about this prayer is veneration. And this is the idea of fearing God. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. It's not the only time in the wisdom books like Proverbs and Psalms where it talks about fear being replaced with fear, (laughs) human fears and phobias being replaced with the fear of God. Now, the fear of God's a big subject. And yes, there is some degree of dread in it because God is so awesome. But I agree with what John Stott said here when he said, to fear God is not, of course, to be frightened of him. Its meaning here is found in its equivalents to seek him, to cry to him, and to trust him. We are acknowledging our helplessness and we're looking to him for deliverance and we're recognizing with great respect and awe that he is the king. Veneration. Do you fear God? That's one of the deepest and most telling questions we could ever answer. Do you fear God? If you do, then your life is going to be lived in a far different way from those who don't know the Lord and they're described as there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then I would add to it, this is looking to God with expectation. This is how we look, expectation. In other words, we're expecting him to deliver. We're expecting him to answer, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who trusts in him, or some translations have it, who finds safety, refuge in him. Very interesting word picture because David went to the city of Gath for refuge instead of going to the king of glory for safety and refuge. That word refuge is found both in verse 8 and 22. If you have the old NIV, if you have the new NIV, it's replaced with trusting him. And it really means the same thing. The place of refuge is a perfect picture of those who run into God for safety and put their faith and trust in him. So how are we to look to the Lord Have you ever seen Downton Abbey? Did you ever think that that would give you some spiritual direction? In one sense, it can. For we read in Psalm 123, I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid looks to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to Yahweh, the Lord our God, until he shows mercy on us. Psalm 123. So how do you look? You look as one who is subservient. You look as one who recognizes that Jesus is king. He is master and you are merely a servant. You look with submission and humility, you look for direction. We look for assistance in Psalm 123, of course, forgiveness and mercy. So that's how you look. We are to look to him in all of these different ways. And now notice the outcome. We're back to verse 5. Those who look to him are what? It's hard to say it. Radiant, radiant. I say it's hard to say it when you feel like you're the only one talking. Let's all say radiant, radiant, okay. Radiant, that's a good word. It means to shine, to glow. And what is the opposite of radiant? Your face is covered with shame. Where do you get that? It's the rest of verse five. This is Hebrew poetry. These aren't two different things. These are two sides of the same thing. The positive thing is that you will be radiant. The negative, or at least said in a negative, you will never be covered with shame. Who was just covered with shame from head to toe and spit on the beard? And now he says, Oh boy, did I. I can't believe I did that. Don't. Don't we all have those? I can't believe I did that. You'll be having a great week and you'll remember something you did in high school and you go, oh, I can't, I can't believe I did that. Can I erase that? No, I hope no one remembers. So you don't go back to your high school reunion for fear. That someone may remember. Never covered with shame, you're covered with confidence. It's like a bride on her wedding day. Talk about radiance. It's like a mother when all her kids are home for Christmas and sitting around the table. Radiance. It's like Moses. Who talked face to face with God, Exodus 33. And when he came down from the mountain, he didn't know that his face was what? Glowing. He was radiant. And someone told him And then he put a veil over it. It's interesting. When you study the scriptures, it says that when he went back into the presence of God, he took the veil off. I get to get recharged. And when he first came out, he didn't put the veil on until he talked with the people for a little bit. And then he put the veil on. There was a pause there. And you want to know why? When you go to 2 Corinthians, it says he put the veil on because the glory was fading. And he didn't want people to see. He he didn't know he was glowing. But when he found out he was glowing, he kind of liked it. And he didn't want people to see the glow dissipating. Well, if you don't want to see the glow go out of your life, look to the Lord every day. And let him touch your heart. Isaiah 60 verse 5, then you will look and be radiant and your heart will throb and swell with joy. A message to Israel, Isaiah 60 verse 5. You will look and be radiant. I know this, this is partly personality and I know it's probably partly physical health. But you think about those Christians that you know well who just seem to glow with the grace of God. And those are the people you want to be around. You don't want to be around the naysayers. You don't want to be around the no-faces. You don't be a, be around the critics. A little bit of time with them is more than enough. But the people who energize you, whose glow affects you, those are the people you want to be around. By the way, this... Quotation, face is never covered with shame, is taken from Isaiah 26 and verse 16. So it's mentioned here, and I know it's also mentioned in the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 33, and chapter 10, verse 11. Sometimes with a slightly different translation. Those who believe in him, which is the same as looking, those who trust in him, will never be confounded. They will never be disappointed and they will never be put to shame. Now this seems like a pretty amazing result, but that's only the first one. The second result, what happens when you look to him, personal transformation. Secondly, divine intervention. This is verse four. I sought the Lord and he heard me. In other words, I looked to him he heard and responded, and he delivered me. He delivered me from all my troubles. I think the word delivered is used four times, and the word saved two times in my translation, which gives us six different times. David couldn't get over the fact. He delivered me. He de- I should have been wiped out like a, like a bug. I should have been killed at Gath. That was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And he delivered me. And I'm so glad that God delivers us from the dumb things we do, starting with sin, and then just foolish choices. God steps in. But I want you to note, be careful not to lose the balance of this psalm. For if you just want to selectively read a few verses, God delivers me from all my problems. The word troubles, used three times, always in the plural. God delivers me from all my troubles. All my troubles, they're all gone. And yet in the midst of that, verse 18, brokenhearted. The righteous are always going to be facing troubles. They cry out, verse 17, and the Lord delivers. But look at verse 20. He guards and all of his bones, he guards all of his bones, not one of them is broken. That is messianic. And it refers to what? The crucifixion. (laughs) Apparently, this is not a psalm that says, look to the Lord and all your problems are forever gone. It means that God gives us victory. He limits them their intensity and extent. He controls them, but they're not totally taken away. And Christ is our pattern. Now, there will be ultimate deliverance. This psalm is not telling us, though, that we'll we'll have all of our problems taken from us. But when we look to him, we're radiant, even in the midst of those difficulties. And the brokenhearted can find peace and the wounded healing and the hurting find help. And we will not be condemned. And by the way, when you look to him, verse 5, verse 15 of this psalm says, he looks to you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears. Are open to their cry. Communicating, connection with the eyes, telling it all of a heart of faith that wants to trust. No, it's not about how you look in the sense of your appearance, it's about how you look. in the sense of a spiritual focus. It's about where you look. It's about the one that you're looking to for help. That's what is so important. And so as we start out a new year, let me help, to direct, help you to direct your focus like I'm trying to help me to direct my focus on Christ every day at the start. I'm going to lift up my eyes to you And see you as the Lord of glory. And I'm going to lay my burdens before you. My broken heart. My crushed spirit. The afflictions I face. The troubles that surround me. I'm going to bring these up to you. And I'm going to look to you until my face glows with peace. And my shame has been removed. And that, my friend, will make for a great year. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight, return victorious. Every knee before him shall bow and crown him, crown him, crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. So Lord, I need help in this because I'm so easily distracted. One shiny thing of the world passes by me and my focus is taken. One headline from a news source, and I think that you've stepped off your throne. One visit to a doctor, and I think that you no longer care, but you do. And so, Lord, forgive us for our failures and our foolishness, our sin, help us in our weakness, give us strength and faith and perseverance to look. Let us keep looking till we see, and when we see, to rejoice. In your name we pray, amen.